1: where we talk each week about the transformations that can come from loss. Today, I'm welcoming Suzanne Marriott. Suzanne is a memoirist and deep travel writer who shares her transformative experiences with readers. Her writings on compassionate caregiving have been published in the union newspapers, Healthy You Magazine and her stories of deep travel have ap- appeared in Your Life is a Trip, an award-winning e-magazine. She's a member of the Institute of Noetic Sciences, Sierra Writers, and the National Association of Memoir Writers. She lives in an ecologically conscious co-housing community in the Sierra Nevada foothills. Today, we'll mostly be talking about her memoir, Watching for Dragonflies, A Caregiver's Transformative Journey. And if you want to find more more about her, her compassionate caregiving work, etc., you can go to Suzanne Marriott, author dot com, welcome Suzanne. Thank you, thank you so much for having me. I'm delighted. Uh, you know, we do have something in common—being uh, people who transformed through caregiving. And uh, I feel you'll particularly understand that I—I feel I learned more about caring for myself in caring for another person and grieving that person than I've learned from any other single thing. And I definitely get the feeling uh, in your book that the same was true for you. Definitely, it was.
2: Um, I learned through my caring for my husband, Michael, who had MS, um, more and more about compassion. And I also learned to have more compassion for myself as I faced so many difficulties, and I one of the things I learned was to uh, accept that I would make mistakes from time to time. We're human, and uh, but learn. I learned so much from those mistakes, and um, I also myself at some at some point during this whole journey of caring for my husband, I had cancer. So that was a big opportunity for me to focus more on self-care.
1: And- so I got the impression, let's, let's linger there a second. I got the impression that that actually, um, and this happens for, so maybe I'm reading in, but this happens for a lot of cancer patients I work with in my therapy practice. It gives you permission in a way. If you can't take care of yourself when you're facing cancer, when can you in a way? Um, but that juxtaposition of um, being in the, in the mode of caring for your husband and then making that transition, that must have been complicated. It was very
2: complicated. And you're so right. It did give me permission to care for myself because, um, it, it, as I saw it in the beginning, it was a life or death um, situation. And uh, although I wanted to be there for my husband, I also wanted to be there for myself, for my life.
1: Well, also one thing I feel I learned, and maybe it'll resonate for you, is that if I didn't take care of myself, everything fell apart. Uh, I couldn't. I couldn't actually take care of her if I didn't. And I did make some mistakes in that regard, like lifting things I knew I shouldn't lift and. Um, you know overdoing it and then being on my back for two weeks or you know um, it really taught me that uh, that gas mask thing you know air mask you got to put your own on or you can't help anybody Uh, definitely is, is that familiar to you
2: uh yes um at one point I see I was still working through most of the time beginning anyway the when Michael had ms and he was well getting worse over time so he was in a wheelchair um for the last 5 years of his life and at that point while I was still working and he was in a wheelchair I realized I needed some help and I couldn't do it all on my own So I hired this wonderful woman. Her name was Una. She was from Tonga, and uh, she would come in uh, six days a week and get Michael ready for the day. All the things that had to be done, transferring from the bed to the wheelchair, to the shower, um, the toilet, all this whole thing. And we had an overhead lift, which... uh, and he, you know, the whole thing of putting on a, the sling on him and getting him in the overhead lift and then into the chair and then into the bathroom, quite a ordeal. And so if I hadn't been able to hire
1: her, um, I don't know what I would have done. You brought back memories because um, my wife had a Hoyer lift at the end of her life. I think that's close to what you're talking about, except you had an electrical um, one at some point. Um, I had a lot of help. She insisted like from the very beginning, but of course we had children. So there were a lot of needs going on at once, but um, I was trying to remember if I did that alone because she was a very large person. Um, And I think I did, but that wasn't that smart. That wasn't
2: that wise. We originally had a Hoyer lift, which uh, our HMO, through Medicare, they provided it. I couldn't, my husband was 6'5", and at that point he weighed maybe 240. I couldn't do it safely. I I couldn't do it at all, certainly not safely. So uh, we were fortunate enough to be able to afford an overhead uh, electric lift and without that uh that wouldn't have been possible.
1: Your your book made me think about something that is to the side of your story which is the economics of disability. Yeah. Um you know it it was pretty ruinous for for us. she couldn't work and uh, I couldn't work as much, right? So I- uh, I, I had, it took a while to recover after she died. And um, those things about what you can afford and what you can't and what you do if you can't afford it. Um, those are huge questions for people. And I've been so aware of that in these last through, through few years, especially around COVID with so many people facing health crises and you know not having the things they need to to support their lives, uh, I I have lots. We had lots of friends, some money. You had some money. I, I really think a lot about people who have who have nothing in those regards.
2: Yeah, it can be very very difficult. Uh, fortunately, Michael did qualify for um, early social security and a small pension. Uh, Not as big as if he'd gone the full time to retirement, but we did get a pension and I had uh, a good salary and um, we were able to make it and purchase what we we absolutely required. And we did have excellent uh, coverage, medical insurance coverage, which was wonderful to have.
1: Yeah life the difference between living and not living sometimes uh for some people that's that's kind of what i'm thinking about when i say that that without certain things it is very hard to live
2: definitely and uh our country is not on the uh, cutting edge
1: of providing for the people no this we are in total agreement about that for sure but um you know, he, he strikes me. I, I love that I get to know the people that aren't in the interview. You know, I've, I've now gotten to know Michael through your book. And, um, he also went through a radical transformation because, you know, how many people say, oh, if I was ever in a wheelchair, I just would want to die or, you know, um, and he sounds as if he was an extremely physical person. Um, very, very oriented to his physicality. What was it like to observe him coming to terms with his declining body? Because it seems as if he also transformed.
2: He did in many ways. Um, He did finally accept a wheelchair. He was very much adverse to that in the beginning because to him in the beginning, that just was the end. Uh, He would kill himself before he allowed that to happen to him. But then his decline was gradual. And at some point, he absolutely realized that this was something he had to do. But instead of going to our HMO and saying, you know, I'd like to be fitted for a wheelchair, he just went out and bought one. And uh, it didn't fit him correctly. You know, I'm sure the salesman thought, oh, I've got you know a good one here you <laughs> got someone on the line <laughs> but it was a, a manual of course but it worked for a while uh, he was water walking at the y in berkeley at the time we lived in castro valley and uh, he could uh, collapse it and put it in the trunk and uh drive he could drive then to um the water to the y in Berkeley and do his water walking and then rest for a long time and, you know, get it back in, get back, I get the whole thing, get home. <laughs> but eventually um, he went to this wonderful uh, rehab facility and uh, was finally fitted for an electric chair that fit him and uh, it made a big difference. And we got a wheelchair van. And. uh Things worked better, but he found that with the wheelchair, especially the electric one, he was more mobile. He could go places. He would take Bart, Bay area rapid transit, over to the city and visit the Museum of Modern Art, which he loved to go to. So it gave him some freedom,
1: which he turned to, he you know became very appreciative of it's It's funny how uh, sometimes the thing you can't bear is the thing that actually gives you freedom. I noticed that with with Joanne. She was actually good at at saying, well, I need that now, you know, in order to live my best life. <laughs> she was had a talent for that, but um that's a real problem for a lot of people, and it's and it's tough to watch. Mm-hmm. Uh, someone is resisting the very thing that would help them to be. Uh, more able to do things, right? It's it's painful to watch. It's a little, uh, I guess, out of order because um, you, the, the readings you're going to share are after his death, but I still want to give people a chance to hear the book a little bit. Um, could you share the section about synchronicities?
2: Yes, um, this is after Michael passed away. And uh, of course, I was bereft. And missing him terribly. Um, but these wonderful synchronicities occurred, which made me feel well, not just feel, but which really connected me to my husband. And so, uh, shall I read that now? Absolutely. Okay, this is um, Synchronicities. Two days after Michael's death, I visit my therapist for our weekly session. Sharing my grief and confusion with her gives me a sense of grounding and safety. As I emerge from her office, wearing a red fleece top that was Michael's, which still holds his comforting scent, I'm suddenly aware of his presence. He tells me to walk down the street to a shop we both knew. I hear his voice inside my head His voice, not mine. I want to buy you a gift, he says. How will I know where it is, I ask. You'll know. On entering the shop, I'm drawn to a red Buddha board on my left, just a few steps from the entrance. It looks like a slim laptop computer, but as the proprietor shows me, instead of opening to a screen, it opens to a blank surface on which one can write or draw with a soft brush dipped in water. As the red surface takes on the water, the image the images emerge in a darker shade of red and then slowly fade away. Immediately I know this is a this is Michael's gift. It's as if he has handed it to me. I purchase it, take it home, and place it on the coffee table in front of the couch. I sense that Michael has given me a beautiful symbol of impermanence. I'm entranced as the first three flowing lines I draw on the Buddha board gradually fade, leaving just two drops of red. I watch and wonder as one disappears then the other. I feel Michael sitting with me on the couch. And I thank him. You've taken care of me for so long, he tells me. Now, I will take care of you.
1: That is so meaningful to me because I had a really similar experience to that after my wife died, where I was in a gift shop. and and um in a similar way to the way you're describing i knew that there was something there from her oh, wonderful and it turned out to be uh she was she was a black woman it was a black angel a awesome. statue and uh it's it's rather worn down now cuz it was a, almost 30 years ago but um it was such a meaningful moment and it made me think maybe we can talk more about this after the break, which is about to come come up, that I didn't feel ever as if I'd entirely lost her, but I certainly felt the extreme loss of her body. Right, right. Of her, of her um, way of being in the world, which was crushing, but I still don't feel as if I've entirely lost her and i have a feeling you know what i'm talking about i do very much um a big transformation of relationship <laughs> no doubt about that um especially given that i'm repartnered you know I, i'm remarried but um that's doable for me to to have a different type of relationship um but you you really made me me smile when I read that part of the book, just because that's such a precious experience that not that many people have had. maybe yeah. more than the ones that admit it. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody wants to be found crazy, do we? <laughs> or or to have someone refute that. Yeah, that would be dangerous. right. I, I appreciate that you asserted it so. Uh, fully it's it's unarguable right thank you yes yeah so let's go to a break and and maybe we can talk more about that creative tension of still with not alive mm-hmm. listeners you can go to my website or social media to follow me and connect with me and let me know what you think And to find Suzanne Marriott, you can go to SuzanneMarriottAuthor.com and it's M-A-R-R-I-O-T-T in case the spelling of Marriott is not obvious. Be back soon.
0: Follow Voice America at Facebook.com forward slash Voice America for juicy updates from your favorite radio shows and podcasts.
1: This is Good Grief host Cheryl Jones. Whether you're in grief, crisis, deep loss, or transition, working with the right therapist can move you forward like nothing else. That's why I'm happy to be sponsoring BetterHelp. Their user-friendly platform connects you with a therapist uniquely suited to support you. If you want to know more, follow the link on my host page or go to betterhelp.com slash goodgrief. That's betterhelp.com slash goodgrief and receive a 10% discount for the first month.
0: Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcasts.
2: Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency
0: Podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. Resiliency Within can be heard every Monday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones.
1: Welcome back. This is your host, Cheryl Jones. And I've been talking with Suzanne Marriott about her recently released book, Watching for Dragonflies. And Suzanne, before the break, I was uh we were heading into a conversation about the um not here but not gone <laughs> phenomenon that I think you and I share that um the loss was not entirely of her her and i wonder what your thoughts are about that with michael well i very much missed the physicality of michael
2: um being held holding him um just the experience but i realized that this was a time when i needed to make A different kind of connection with Michael it had to be a spiritual connection and uh, that happened actually uh, right after he died and uh, he had passed away was in the hospital I came home and I was sitting in his chair and I had this experience of him coming to me and being with me and it was it was almost physical. I, I felt it in my body and I felt his presence very, very, very forcefully almost. It was, I was breathing diff, hard and, you know, deeply. And um, this lasted for a while. And I just knew that our connection would continue. It would be different. I would miss him. And I still do, but he's there. He hasn't left me. And I haven't left him.
1: You know, I think there's a mistake that happens that people call that kind of experience shock. But I actually, sometimes it is, mm-hmm. right? It Sometimes people are in shock after someone dies. I never felt I was in shock. I felt I was um, living in a different realm a little bit
2: mm-hmm.
1: where where that is viscerally true that you're still connected.
2: Yeah,
1: um, but um, it didn't feel shocky at all. And you don't sound like you felt shocked, or or shocky. You know what I mean by shocky, sort yeah. of. No, I
2: wasn't. I wasn't in shock. I was in an altered state of consciousness, but I wouldn't call it shock.
1: <laughs> yeah, and it's, uh, it's a very present state. At least for me, I felt very very present and. It, totally aware that she had died. I was not in any kind of denial or, you know, but just uh, maybe open in a certain way.
2: Well, it definitely was an opening, an opening to another level um, and uh, another way of being, another way of connecting. It, It was beautiful in many, many ways. And at that point, I remember going over to the CD player and putting on a CD that we both loved. And it was Neil Young singing um, uh, Harvest Moon. And uh, because you're still in love with me, I wanna see you laugh again on this Harvest Moon or because I'm still in love with you. Uh, And we were still in love with each other. And I just felt as he was singing that this was a message from Michael too. And uh, messages kept coming in many, many different forms.
1: One difference I think maybe between uh, your experience with Michael and mine with Joanne is that we were always talking about her death because she was never not dying, right? With uh, MS is a much more mysterious thing where it's definitely debilitating but it's not necessarily going to kill you at any particular time. Um, she just kept out living predictions. That was confusing, but you know, we knew she would die and so we talked about it a lot. And um, it seemed to me as if um, the timing of Michael's death came a bit as a surprise. Um, that, that really neither of you were expecting it right then. And then that it, it made me wonder if that caused you to feel unprepared uh, more, more broadly or more, more largely. I think it
2: did. Um, I think we were in denial, uh, but our neurologist had also told Michael, you don't die from MS, you die from complications of MS. Well, this wasn't a solid thing for us to get our head around. And
1: also, what does that even mean? If you die from the complications of MS, didn't you die of MS? <laughs> it, seems, it seems semantic a bit. <laughs> yeah.
2: And, and, and another thing was, the last year of his life, he was in the hospital seven times. But each time he would come home and he would bounce back. He would be in remission. We would actually travel, do some some traveling, some and uh, going places, and then there'd be another crisis. But he'd bounce back, and so I got to, we both got to expecting that this would simply continue,
1: mm-hmm.
2: and it didn't, <laughs> of mm-hmm. course.
1: It didn't. Mm-hmm. And so, um, were was there a quality? I, I, I guess I would say I was not stunned when when Joanne died because I knew. We also were, uh, she had a particular condition that uniformly kills people very quickly as an outgrowth of her cancer, not her cancer, something as an out, a side effect of her cancer. And, um, you know, they said everyone dies within a month. She lived four months. Wow. But it, we still knew it was gonna kill her. So there was no, not a stunning X, uh, but for you, You must've thought it was just like all the other times.
2: I did, and um, I was disappointed in retrospect, the doctor we had this last time, he said to me, do you want Michael to go home? And I said, well, of course. Well, he didn't say, well, he's gonna go home and die, which is pretty much what happened. He didn't give me the information I needed to deal with the situation I found myself in. And uh, he was not a doctor we'd had before. He was a hospital one of the hospital doctors, but not the best one we'd had, and um, so we found ourselves in crisis um, not too long after Michael came home. Um, so um, you know, I, I I do blame him in 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 ways because he could have said it's time to set up hospice, which we could have done, but we didn't. I didn't.
1: I I feel there's a failure. In many medical professionals, uh, they they have not been trained to have that conversation. Yeah, and uh, I'm I'm recalling when my mother-in-law died, uh, just a few years ago. Um, it seemed to me like we were at the point where she was probably dying, but nobody was talking about it. And I I said to my now wife. Um, ask the cardiologist if she has any meaningful chance of recovery, uh-huh. and and she did. And he, I mean, you could see the relief just drip off of him because he didn't know how to bring it up. Uh huh. Uh-huh. And and I think that's that's terrible for everybody, right? For for the person on your end or our end to be responsible for bringing up is are they dying but also for the doctor who doesn't know how to bring it up but deals with people dying uh it's terrible
2: it must be a a failure of the medical uh establishment but also the 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 medical training
1: it's It's getting a little better it is uh, because a lot of people are working on that But, but not entirely. And of course, if you have a doctor who was trained before that started being on anyone's mind, mm-hmm. um, even if they might've been willing, they don't, they're not able, they don't know how. They don't have the language. They don't have the language. They think they're intruding, you know, all kinds of reasons we don't need to go into. But I think that's a bit of a tragedy. Because people knowing what's happening really does help. You're, I, I agree with you there that that would have helped you immeasurably at that point. It was. I needed
2: some guidance at that point. I think doctors, at least in the past, maybe not so much now, but still, see see death as a failure. Their
1: failure. They failed. That is often true. Um, I know so many. Um, well, I know more palliative care doctors than any other kind. So maybe that influences my point of view. But I do know doctors that are good at that and that don't don't see it that way. I just hope that spreads. I hope so too. Would you would you like to share a little bit more of the book? Yes, I would.
2: That would be great. Um I there are a lot of dreams that I um they have placed into my book 20 actually i had encountered them the other day and uh, so dreams helped me a lot to uh, to get insights um my unconscious knowledge coming up to consciousness through dreams was wonderful and so this is this um uh, short excerpt is has some dreams in it that i'd like to share <clears throat> I intend to experience grief consciously, not push it away or strive to overcome it. Now is not the time to abandon our love by hiding in the arms of oblivion. Yet much of the time I feel out of control, carried up and down on waves of grief. And often I sob uncontrollably. All the trite clichés I've ever heard take on new and real meaning for me, such as waves of grief, aching heart, dark night of the soul, tears welling up, lump in my throat, swallowing my tears, and on and on. I have an illuminating dream on January 4th, three days after Michael's death. I'm going on an amusement ride. It's a huge roller coaster, but it's inside and it's going down into the interior of a place that has lots of twists and turns. It's supposed to be very severe and frightening, but I'm committed to riding it. At one point, I have to get out of the seat and climb up a thin metal ladder to another level. It's dark in here ominous and dangerous. I'm not aware of other people. There seem to be some, but they are vague. In another dream, I'm on, I'm in an airplane cockpit. But even though I'm sitting in the pilot's seat, I'm not flying the plane. There's confusion as to where I should sit. From these two dreams, I get a glimpse of another facet of my journey through grief, ascension. In the second dream, I'm flying, though confused and not in control. And even in the first dream, after the roller coaster descent through grief into the depths of my psyche, a ladder appears, and I'm able to climb to the next
1: level. I feel you should uh, go on Dr. Joshua Black's podcast. Um, I interviewed him at one point. He he um, has a podcast called Grief Dreams. Oh, I you know I
2: do believe he contact was made contact, and I think his podcast came very early in the morning for me, and I'm not a morning person, and I didn't.
1: Well um he's a very interesting person, but um, you know those that uh, the way in which dreams can help one. Um, I'm not a big dream rememberer. I, I kind of envy it, but um, I can see that it laces through your your grief quite profoundly. and that that dream is such a great example. Uh, because you actually went through something and and got to another level by the end of the dream, didn't you? I did. did and
2: you? So it was comforting to know that I
1: wasn't going to drown in this deep pit of despair. Yes. Uh, um, we, we are approaching another break, but I'm really curious if you... Uh, you know, had dreams about Michael much. I he appeared. Yes,
2: I did. And he came to me and I felt his love and support. And he felt mine. Um, I also contacted him in other ways. I tried automatic writing. I went to mediums who were adept at being able to contact. And uh, so I got one very... Um, positive message from a medium who said well he's on the other side and he's he's elated because he's no longer disabled he can he's free he can move and uh, he she said don't take this wrong but he can't wait till you come and arrive and be with him
1: (laughs) in other words don't rush it (laughs) that's it that's um I've thought a lot since I'm remarried, uh, I'm I'm actually doing some writing um, under the heading forever. You know, when you commit to two people uh, in an inviolate and forever way, how does that actually work? I don't know. It won't be me that figures that out, but it's, it's a complicated, uh, if I think about it, it's complicated in my heart, n- not so complicated, but that sense of joining, you know, not sure what that looks like, <laughs> but it would be lovely, wouldn't it?
2: It would. And there's the idea that we let, we have soul groups, so it's possible that everyone we're in love with is in our soul group that we arrange <laughs> <to> this.
1: <laughs> I'll go with that. <laughs> Let's go to another break, and we'll we'll come back and talk some more, and. Uh, listeners, you can go to weatheringgrief.com. That is my website. You can go to the Good Grief host page. And to find Suzanne Marriott, go to com. Be back after the break.
0: Voice America is on LinkedIn. Connect with us today.
1: This is Good Grief host, Cheryl Jones. Whether you're in grief, crisis, deep loss, or transition, working with the right therapist can move you forward like nothing else. That's why I'm happy to be sponsoring BetterHelp. Their user-friendly platform connects you with a therapist uniquely suited to support you. If you want to know more, follow the link on my host page or go to BetterHelp.com goodgrief That's BetterHelp.com. Dot com slash goodgrief and receive a ten percent discount for the first month. <laughs>
0: Functional Medicine with Dr. Robbins looks at how natural healing and biological dentistry can safely and effectively treat most health problems
1: watching for dragonflies um before the break suzanne we were we were kind of delving into the murky area of afterlife (laughs) which i i find i'm willing to not know exactly but um it's pretty impossible for me to imagine that there's nothing there having felt that connection beyond death. Um, I don't know if that, it sounds as if that resonates for you. The exact definition, I haven't been there, so (laughs) we'll see. But do you have specific um, concrete ideas about that for yourself or more of a a, uh, willingness to imagine?
2: Well, I'm definitely open to the possibilities. And um, I've read people like um, Robert Monroe, who started the uh, Monroe Institute, Um, HemiSync as a way of uh, of changing your consciousness to go different levels. I did uh, do his training, uh, which has a lot to do with after death experiences. Also, I think NDEs, uh, near death experiences, have allowed us a glimpse into the possibilities of, of after death um, realities. And there's so much um, uh, things in people's experiences, after death experiences, that are similar. Um, that's very interesting. Even Alexander. His book, uh, Proof of Heaven, and the book he wrote after that, I don't remember the name, but it has heaven in the title, I thought was even more interesting. And he was a, a surgeon, a neurophysicist, doctor, or something like that. And So there's just, there's so much out there. But I've also had a felt sense um, that there is something beyond. And, uh, you know,
1: I, I've... Um heard many people uh, talk about um, beliefs in that regard as kind of a of a lack of reality or not accepting or a way to not grieve. but I haven't found that that's true. People grieve and have those beliefs. you know they're they're not they're two parts they're not um, in opposition. Maybe for some people they are um, trying to get, get out of grieving by saying they're in heaven or whatever, but that's certainly not how you're talking, not the way I talk, not the way. Um, and interestingly, I have, I have interviewed several mediums on this show, and um, they all say that they tend not to work with someone right after a loss, that, that um, they don't actually wanna interrupt grief. Mm. and that if often, if people come immediately, they're trying to interrupt their grief. Mm -hmm. I found that very interesting that it was more than one medium that said that uh, to me. And I think that's wise, Mm -hmm. actually. It's not that they couldn't access anything, it's that it wouldn't be in as much service of the person who was hoping for the connection. You didn't need that. I didn't feel the need of that because I felt connected. But you know, twenty-seven, eight years later, I find it intriguing what's going on now. <laughs> I I did actually
2: um, go to a medium. It wasn't too long after Michael died, but I and that's the one I I had talked about previously but I didn't find that it interrupted my grief. It gave me a new level of understanding, but it, um, it, it, it helped me, but it did dissipate the grief. I still missed him.
1: Mm-hmm. I, I'm getting the impression from you that we also share uh, something that did surprise me in grief somewhat is how completely physical it was. It, it my body was grieving. It didn't matter where I was at in my head at all. <laughs> my body was in charge. And when you were talking about um, torrents of tears yeah. and you know the various ways you talked about it, that's that experience, isn't, isn't it? The lump in the throat, the heartache. It's all very, very physical.
2: I felt it very, very physically. Yes, um, I felt it in my heart. Uh, I felt it in my arms because I longed to hold him. Um, uh, it was. It was, and I. I sometimes I felt that he was touching me. Um,
1: yeah, it was very physical in many ways. I feel that's a bit of a complication in, at least U.S. culture that because we live in our heads so much that's not an experience most people are used to having their bodies be in charge like that uh and and having to ride ride it instead of thinking our ways through things um and it sounds as if both you and I had some practice with that beforehand uh, um you know how to how to stay with your how to stay with a good feeling you know see yourself to the end of it, I guess mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. it uh,
2: definitely is a journey and it has its ups and downs and uh time helps um take away the immediacy of the pain and the longing but for me uh, I still cry frequently just because I miss him. Or I wish I could share something with him, a sunset or anything, you know, that touches me, I would like to be able to share with him.
1: And, you know, I know that you've moved since his death. So you have a lot of new experiences you would want to share. Uh, that's hard for some people to uh, move into new experiences. Was that hard for you to... to? Um choose new experiences uh over kind of staying where you had been with him or was it necessary what what how was that for you well it was
2: necessary in in some ways because um well my i was going i was in therapy i um and my therapist and i had been throughout most of this journey and my therapist um did help me move forward and I was online looking online and I had both Michael and I had learned about co-housing which is a way to live with others in community. So um, about six months after he passed, I did an online search and I found a community uh, just forming up in uh, Grass Valley, up in the Sierra foothills. And uh, I was intrigued, I thought, this is something I need to check out. Um, And I ended up joining that community and, and many years after we first formed, we built, and I'm living in that community now. But my therapist said at one point, that saved your life. And I don't think she meant that literally. I think she meant, and the way I see it, is that it gave me a direction, a meaningful way to go forward. And I don't feel I left Michael behind because he too had been interested in this concept. Um, So uh,
1: it was was a good thing for me to do. What stands out there is it gave you a sense of direction but you didn't have to immediately do it.
2: No. um, As
1: many people have those kinds of flashes of insight at the beginning, like you had six months in this this catches me, but don't have the energy to bring it about right then. So um, that was a lucky thing for you that you didn't have to immediately pack up or,
2: you know. And for many, many years, we met once a month. So I would drive up from my home and stay overnight with, with friends who were part of the community. So it was a once a month, um, a commitment for many years um and then the we worked in teams uh for different reasons different different uh, jobs that had to be done for the community and this would happen on the phone so I would be in connection we had a, a conference line we didn't have it was before zoom and Skype and everything so um uh, it was a consistent way of moving forward but also staying where i was brilliant
1: could you share just one more piece of your of your book before we go today yes thank you
2: i'd love to and this i think is 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 very positive uh so a good note to end on Uh, again it has some dreams on the advice of my therapist I join a support group. Now this is different from the co-housing. This was a local support group. <clears throat> I feel like it it feels like the right thing to do, and it turns out to be a wise decision. Being with people who really know and understand what I'm going through proves to be profoundly supportive. I learn that I'm not alone in my grief, and I discover that by sharing my own pain, and experiencing my empathy for the pain of others, I begin to heal. As I watch others move through their grief and find ways to become active again, I gain hope. During this time, I have another vivid dream that I share with the group. Michael and I are in San Francisco and we have become separated. I have the van and i have to pick him up to bring him home but i don't know where he is i ask someone where where could i find michael and he tells me michael is in the san francisco museum of modern art you can find him in the memories gallery he says with this dream in mind i begin to leaf through the many journals i kept over the course of michael's illness Something inside me knows that through my writings, I can begin to integrate all that has happened. That through honoring my memories, I can heal and bring meaning to my suffering. I begin my writings into, I bring my writings into therapy and read and discuss what I've written with my therapist. In its way, this is a life review One of Michael's dreams I recounted in my journal seems especially poignant right now. It's a dream he had after he began using the wheelchair. He's sitting along the wall in a dance hall. President Clinton comes over to him. Can you walk? He asks Michael. I can walk, Michael replies and stands up. Can you dance? President Clinton asks. I can dance, Michael answers, and they dance. Once again, Michael's successful, vibrant, charismatic self is in the lead. Now in my imagination, I add to this stream. I imagine President Clinton asking, can you fly? And I imagine Michael saying, I can fly. And I see him taking off in spirit no longer bound to this earth he is free free. from this time on dragonflies no longer evoke the last time michael could walk now for me dragonflies are a symbol of his strength and of his soul in flight and i have become the collector of dragonflies
1: Beautiful, thank you for being with me today, Suzanne. Well, thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed the conversation and you can find Suzanne Marriott at S-U-Z-A-N-N-E M-A-R-R-I-O-T-T author.com. Next week, I'll have Roberta S. Kuriloff to talk about her book, Framing a Life, Building the Space to Be Me. This has been Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. I look forward to being with you again next week for another meaningful conversation.
0: Thank you so much for joining us for Good Grief. Please come back next Wednesday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time for another edition featuring your host, Cheryl Jones, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Have a meaningful week.